it's time for mental health. Chapter 28, Child, Older Adult, and Intimate Partner Violence. I'm going to try my best to keep my voice as perky and upbeat as possible, even though this is a very sad topic to talk about, um, especially all the different types of abuse that we see in our world. So let's go to slide two and talk about those types of abuse. Um, first, we have physical abuse. I think everyone's pretty familiar with what that term means. Um, inflicting pain or bodily harm to another person um, by kicking, hitting, slapping, punching, biting, whatever you can think of that inflicts pain on someone else. Then you have sexual abuse. That is either sexual contact or the exposure to sexual ideas without consent, um, and you cannot gain consent from a victim that is underage. So that would be sexual abuse. Emotional abuse is not always as easy to spot for us. Um, sometimes people don't know exactly what it means or how to define it. Um, it is the undermining of a person's self-worth. That is emotional abuse. So any way that you can bring someone's self-worth down, cause them to have low self-esteem by uh, humiliating them, name-calling, putting them down, whatever it is that undermines their self-worth. Neglect is a type of abuse that means nothing has happened. So there's a complete failure to do anything where the other types of abuse uh, so far are actually actions that someone has done. Neglect is the lack of action. So failure to provide any physical needs, emotional, educational, or medical needs, all of those things, if you are not providing them, especially to a child or an older adult that needs your assistance, that is neglect. And the last one is economic abuse. This is when a person controls someone else's access to resources, um, thus making them financially dependent on the abuser. So if you control the finances, um, but also if you forbid someone to work on their own or um, school attendance or something like that, you are um, committing economic abuse because they're not able to gain their own resources. Slide three, uh, we talk about the prevalence. Half of all Americans have experienced violence in their families. Half. It's quite a staggering statistic. Um, comorbidity, we know that the secondary effects of violence are going to be anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation. And as we've talked about in previous chapters, our most vulnerable people for being abused are going to be the young children, so kids under three. So the younger the child, the more at risk they are for abuse. Which is interesting because sexual abuse, actually, um, the risk increases with age. We don't see as many infant sexual abuse cases as we do, um, you know, younger children and then on to adolescent cases. Moving on to slide four, the occurrence of violence. Um, so some terms that, that you should be aware of. For the act to be perpetrated, you need to have a perpetrator, which is the bad guy, the bad girl, whatever you want to think. Um, 
That is the abuser. Then you have the vulnerable person who is being abused. Um, typically, you'll hear people um, say victim. And I can tell you that that is a, an older term. Uh, victims do not like to be called victims. Um, it's not empowering them at all. Um, so we like to use the term survivor. Survivor gives them a more hopeful feeling um, that they were able to endure something and, and take control of it. Lastly, a crisis situation. Um, that is just a stressful situation on all of the members of the family. So whatever the family unit, um, whatever that group encompasses, it's a stressful situation on all the members of that. And anytime we have stressful situations, we see that abuse is likely to occur, especially if we're dealing with um, a group that doesn't have appropriate coping skills. Slide number five, we're going to talk about the characteristics of the perpetrators, um, the bad guys or girls. Um, they are often considering their own needs more important than the needs of anyone else. They have poor social skills, they have extreme pathological jealousy, and they may control the family finances. Um, specifically, when we talk about characteristics of abusive parents, um, you will see that they often have a history of abuse as a child themselves, um, and we know that half of all Americans have that history, so that makes sense. Um, usually the perpetrators have low self-esteem, poor coping skills, a history of drug and alcohol abuse, um, depression, um, especially when dealing with uh, crisis situations. So we see a lot of times that a perpetrator does not commit any uh, violent acts, any type of abuse, until there's a very stressful situation going on. Um, perpetrators also might have a low frustration tolerance um, especially abusive parents, they, they might have poor impulse control. So think of these parents, um, a lot of these things on the list could actually be symptoms of um, many of the mental health disorders that we have. So if we have a parent with a mental health disorder, we need to focus specifically on teaching them positive coping skills um, and how to um, build up that frustration tolerance. And they just they need to know other skills to boost their own self-confidence. So moving on to slide six, we'll talk about the cycle of violence. So the first part of the cycle is that tension building phase. That is when the abuser is edgy and they might be having some minor explosions. Minor incidents are starting to trigger that tension between the abuser and the victim. Uh, the victim's going to feel like they're walking on eggshells. They're, they're trying to just be compliant, um, keep under the radar, not cause any incidents. And it leaves them feeling pretty helpless. Um, they might just accept the blame for everything just to you know keep that person from being on edge. And then you move into the acute battering stage, and that is when the tension just becomes unbearable. Um, at this point, the victims may even provoke an incidence because that tension is so overwhelming and they just want to get it over with. So they provoke a fight. Um, the victim will cover injuries um, at this point, and 
Um, after the acute battering stage, they're going to be looking for help, um, especially if they have serious injuries. And then after that occurs, you hit the honeymoon stage, which is when the abuser is loving and, and so sorry and making promises, giving gifts. It's never going to happen again. And this is when your victim really is hopeful. They, they want to trust. They want to believe that um, the abuser will change. Like they are saying, that you know, oh, it'll never happen again. And, and the victims really want to believe that. Um, with the cycle of violence, remember that without an intervention in the cycle, it will just repeat and repeat and repeat. Because from the honeymoon stage, you develop right back into the tension building stage. Moving on to slide seven. The characteristics of a vulnerable person, um, in particular women, um, Women are slightly more often abused than men, um, but it is it can be quite equal. Um, but just know that when a woman becomes pregnant, that can trigger and increase the risk of violence. Many times uh, women will say that they were in a relationship of some kind and there was no violence until they became pregnant. Why is that? Because pregnancy is such a, a stressful time. That would be that crisis situation, especially if it was unplanned. Violence may escalate when the wife makes moves towards independence. Um, if there's a job change or if there's a situational change or a move or something, sometimes in the relationship with uh, one of those people wanting independence, that can trigger violence. And then the greatest risk for violence is when the woman attempts to leave the relationship. That is a big in indicator that violence is going to happen. Moving on to slide eight, uh, what are the characteristics of children, the vulnerable persons that are children? Um, they're younger than three, like I talked about before. Um, they might be perceived as different. Um, so when you hear people say, uh, oh, I'm the, uh, the black sheep, I'm the ugly duckling, um, people often feel different than their families, and they are often the ones most at risk for abuse. Sometimes the child might remind the parents of someone that they don't like. Um, perhaps it's from a relationship that ended bitterly, and they don't want to be reminded of, of the um, other parent. They might, um, these children might be abused because they're the product of an unwanted pregnancy. And also, they are more likely to be abused if there's some kind of interference with the emotional bonding that happens between child and parent. Things that can get in the way of this bonding would be um, if the baby was born prematurely and there was that separation when there should have been uh, bonding happening. So if they're, they're in the hospital for a long time, they had some kind of um, illness or something, that can cause that interference with the bonding. Keep in mind when we talk about children, um, that's people less than 18, but if the person has a developmental disability, it's below age 21. So if it's a 20-year-old with a developmental disability, they're still considered a child. Slide number nine talks about the characteristics of a vulnerable person, such as our older adults. So these are our folks typically over 75 years of age. Um, they have poor mental or physical health. 
So think about your um, memory care type patients, your Alzheimer's dementia. That would be someone in poor mental health, um, physical health, some um, comorbid or chronic conditions. Um, we think of folks that need a lot of extra help. So they are de typically dependent on the perpetrator. So the victims will be um, cared for by the perpetrator. So consider some of these scenarios. Um, female, older than 75 years, white, living with a relative. That is someone who is greatly at risk. Um, elderly father cared for by a daughter he abused as a child. He is definitely at risk. Um, caring for an older adult is quite stressful in itself, um, not to mention if there's some history of abuse from the older adult. And then think of an elderly woman cared for by a husband who has abused her in the past. So if he's abused her when she was well, what's to stop him from uh, abusing her when she's not? So those all put our older population at risk. Moving on to slide 10, we'll talk about the, um, the assessment. So when we do the general assessment, the victim has to be alone. This is difficult sometimes. You'll see this in emergency rooms, urgent care. The perpetrators do not want to leave the victim because they don't want the victim to tell the truth. So we have to find a way to get that victim alone. Um, and then the interview process and setting, it, it should be private. Um, many times you, um, you need to find a private room with a closed door. Um, uh, a setting with curtains in between, like an emergency room setting, that is not a good place to, um, to get a full report. So you need a, a relaxed, supportive, non-threatening type of environment that is private. Um, when you are interviewing the person, you want to make sure that they are allowed to tell the entire story without interruption. It's very important, victims of abuse... Um, they should be allowed to tell the entire story without being questioned. Um, the questions can come later after you've established that therapeutic rapport and they've been able to share their whole story. Um, other tips for interview guidelines, you, you should be um, direct, professional, be understanding and attentive. Um, and then things not to do. Don't try to prove the abuse by accusations or demands. Um, don't display on your face, which will, is very difficult to do, but do not display horror or shock or anger at anything that the victim is telling you. Um, you don't want to show that you are disapproving of what the perpetrator has done. You need to stay neutral, um, and you don't want to show it on your face. Do not place blame or make any judgments. Um, very often you'll have a victim confide in you and talk so poorly about the perpetrator. Um, and then you might say, yeah, th those are terrible things that that person did. And then they will actually turn against you. Remember that their relationship with the perpetrator is a lot stronger than the relationship with you, a nurse who they don't know. Um, always avoid probing or pressing for answers that the patient will not give you. Um, Try your best to establish more of um, more trust if they're not answering certain questions. Come back to those questions later on if you feel like um, 
you know, the, the interview has blossomed and they want to tell you more things. Um, and always conduct the interview private, never with a group of interviewers. You would never want the victim to feel like it's, you know, two nurses on one or two, three nurses against them. It should be a one-on-one -on -one private setting. All right, moving on to slide 11. When we do assess for the types of abuse, we want to know, um, we want to be aware of violence indicators, the level of anxiety and coping responses, how the, the person typically copes with these kind of, um, this abuse, what is the family coping pattern, uh, what kind of social support do they have? Um, what kind of support systems do they have? Have they moved to a different location? Um, they live with the abuser and, and they have no um, friends or family nearby. We, we need to assess that. And then you're always thinking in an abusive situation, we have to ask them if they're having any suicidal or homicidal thoughts because they might be thinking about hurting themselves to end the suffering that they're going through. And they also might be thinking about killing the perpetrator. So those are two very important questions you have to ask when you're doing an abuse assessment. And then we have to assess for drug and alcohol use. Um, and we're assessing both parties, the victim and the perpetrator. We're looking at the injuries. Um, if there are any visible injuries, do the injuries match the story that they're giving? Um, a lot of times that's your first clue when it's physical abuse because you'll see a very severe injury that does not match what they're reporting. When you're assessing for sexual abuse, um, you'll see things like typically in children, um, they will have sexualized behavior. Um, they'll know things that they shouldn't know given their age. Um, they might draw sexually explicit things. Um, also, you'll see, uh, like in young females, um, they might have um, a green or yellow discharge um, that is not age appropriate. Um, you'll see bruising down there. Um, they might also complain of nightmares, um, constant feeling of guilt, because they often blame themselves for the abuse. Um, and there's later on, so we're talking about children, but then in adolescence, there um, is a strong connection between promiscuity and earlier sexual abuse. Emotional abuse, as we talked about earlier, it's more difficult to see. Um, but if you have someone who is withdrawn, have very low self-esteem, uh, they feel inadequate, oftentimes you think that there might be some emotional abuse causing that. Neglect, that's easy to see. Um, they're not being taken care of. They're malnourished. Their medical needs have not been attended to. Their dental needs, uh, they don't have uh, clean clothing to wear, all those things. Um, economic abuse, um, it can be difficult to spot, especially um, given the relationship. Um, some of your um, older adults or, or some of our more traditional thinkers, um, that's how they might have thought about their finances, that the man always controlled the finances. Um, so it might be difficult to see that. Um, 
you, you never know if the person was unable to drive because they didn't want to learn to drive or if they were told to. Did they not go to school because they didn't want to or were they forbidden to? So it's difficult to get uh, a sense of this without the right questions and without an open and honest interview. So then we'll move on to slide 12, um, talking about what nursing diagnoses would be appropriate. Risk for injury, obviously, risk for violence. Um, and then the outcomes are we have to protect them from the abuse, and we would hope for recovery from the abuse. Um, as I talked about earlier, nurses in an emergency room or in urgent care, um, even in the um, primary care type of setting, um, nurses are often the first ones that see abuse. We're typically the first ones that suspect abuse. If you suspect abuse, you are on a long list of mandated reporters. So nurses are at the top of that list. Um, on slide 12, I did put uh, a link to the Ohio Revised Code where it mandates that nurses must report. Um, and just a helpful hint, if you're ever, if you can remember this, um, if you need to report child abuse in Ohio, the numbers one eight five five, O H, and then child, C H I L D. So that's something to uh, carry around with you when you're nursing. Um, sometimes you will be working in a different county than where you live, so you might not be familiar with who to call what county you're in, what uh, job and family services are available. So that quick number is a good way to um, find out what county to call. Um, as far as mandated reporting, I definitely want to hit home that um, you report now. You report at the time. You do not wait until the next day. You don't wait until um, the child has been assessed by a provider um, you don't need anyone else's opinion. This is something that you can you can report anonymously. Um, you can report um, also, you know, as a nurse and give your contact information. Be very careful though about charting this in your um, EMR. Uh, be aware of what your policies are. Um, oftentimes they don't want certain documentation in the record. There's a special place for it, especially if you've disclosed information, you know, that's protected by HIPAA, but it is protected because the child is at risk. So you are allowed to disclose it and you are mandated to do so. So check out that Ohio revised code. Um, those, that number and, and all county job and family services have a 24-hour line hotline that you call. So don't, don't think, oh, it's a weekend or it's a holiday. I, I can't call. There is always someone on call. Moving on to slide 13, talking about the planning. Um, the, the nurse is usually the first one to see. And um, with the abuse... You know, children, they can be taken away. Um, it might not happen right away, but at least that's how you know they will be safe. But typically, if you have an adult or an older adult, it is not that quick of a process. So in the meantime, when you're dealing with adults or older adults that are being abused, you have to give them plenty of community resources. They have to get... Um, 
they have to find a way to be safe while they're at home because typically these won't be folks that are admitted. They're going to be in your care for a couple hours and then right back at home in the situation. So we need to give them crisis hotlines, community resources. Um, there, there are plans set forth by the Joint Commission of things that you need to offer to them. Um, we want to give them mental health services, counseling perhaps, um, you know, links to that. Um, and then as far as implementation on slide 14, like I talked about earlier, you have to report the abuse. Um, and then you talk with the patient. Um, you can make a safety plan. This is not the safety plan we talked about before with suicide. This is more of a, an abuse safety plan, if you will. It has a lot of the same information on it that a suicide safety plan would have, such as um, who can I reach out for for help? Um, who do I call if I need something? Um, what, what can I do in this situation? But it also will contain important phone numbers like the police, um, if there's any hotlines, friends numbers, shelters, so domestic violence shelters. And then it will also have a list on there of items that they need to bring. So if they're in crisis and they're trying to leave their home abruptly, we want to give them a list of things to grab so that they don't forget their important documents. They don't forget, you know, birth certificates, um, their medications. They don't want to leave anything in the home if they are fleeing for their safety. So we would remind them to grab um, insurance type paperwork, um, any of their, you know, sentimental um, jewelry, anything with sentimental value. And then um, we give them suggestions for increasing safety when the relationship is over. So who can they go to? Where can they be safe? Um, how do they avoid areas where the, the perpetrator might be? Um, where can they go where they won't be found? So that's, that's an abuse safety plan. So other things to consider, um, case management, um, we want them to be able to follow up with someone. We want to alert social services to their needs so someone is following up with them outside of the hospital setting. Uh, we want to make sure that they have a therapeutic environment, promote that self-care activities, um, so teach them about caring for themselves. A lot of times if it's someone with emotional abuse specifically, they don't often think of any self-care activities at all. They don't feel worth the um, the time to care for themselves. And then we want to health teach and promote their health. Moving to slide 15, um, prevention of abuse, it goes like um, other forms of prevention when we talk about health teaching and um, keeping our communities healthy. The first step is always the primary prevention. That is when you teach people about something before it occurs. So measures taken to prevent the occurrence of abuse. So examples would be um, teaching people good coping skills um, so that they don't end up resulting in, in being an abuser. Secondary prevention would be the earlier interve intervention in abuse situations to minimize their disabling or long-term effects. So secondary prevention happens once the abuse has occurred but then minimizing the effects by letting people know of available resources, 
um, doing lots of education about, you know, abuse does not need to be tolerated. This is what you can do. This is how you can be safe. This is how you can leave. And then the tertiary prevention, the third step, that is how we facilitate the healing and rehabilitative process. So we provide support, we assist survivors of violence to achieve their optimal level of safety, health, and well-being, and um, you know we encourage them to attend group therapy um, and any kind of counseling that will help them to recover from the abuse that has occurred. Slide 16 talks about what kind of interventions would happen from an advanced practice professional, and that would be individual psychotherapy, family psychotherapy, and group psychotherapy. And when I talk about interventions, I don't just mean at this point for the victims, for the survivors. I also mean for the perpetrators. Um, we want to encourage them to get into some kind of psychotherapy to get to the root of the problem. Um, maybe they need to, uh, you know, we know 50% of Americans have um, grown up in violence. Maybe they need to express their feelings about, you know, what happened to them as a child. A lot of times group psychotherapy for uh, abusers is very helpful. Um, they can hear, they can go to an environment that is non-judgmental because the other people in the environment have also um, been abusers themselves. It's very difficult to find people who are non-judgmental, especially about um, certain topics such as sexual abuse. Um, so group psychotherapy is a good place to go where they can share their thoughts and feelings. Um, and then family psychotherapy can be very good for these, these individuals as well. Um, a lot of times the perpetrator does not see how it's affecting the victims. Um, and they need to hear that in a safe space, how what they're doing, how that's affecting the other people in their lives. So that is all I have on chapter 28. I encourage you to do the review questions at the end of the chapter on page 536.